the depuration facilities, no, the depuration water facilities, and I saw how the population is raising up for these last 30 years. So now it's extremely important that we need to have in a place like the Balearic Islands, like Ibiza and Formentera, a first-class water depuration facilities. Something that is uh, logical in a place that is rich, and we say that we are living in the first world. So we have to be an example about how we treat and how we manage our water from our houses and uh, well, uh, companies, uh, anything else. Uh, so the Posidonian, the other impact is the boat anchorage. Uh, I want to say something very clear. I'm, uh, we need the, the boats visiting the islands. We depend on tourism, but we have to manage. If we should back uh, 50 years, uh, probably in Spalmador Island, it was one, two, three, four boats, five, not more. But now we have 400. No? So it's uh, uh, something about numbers. We are many people. <clears throat> we are many boats. So we need to manage. So uh, the impact of boat anchorage in the Posidonia is huge and is real. And it's not logical. If we are sailing in a tropical reef, who is thinking in dropping the anchor on a beautiful coral reef? No one. So the Posidonia meadows are our coral reefs for the beauty and for all uh, what the Posidonia, as I said before, is giving to us. Mm. I think, you know, that's something that we've obviously faced news of this summer with, with you know, boats anchoring on the Posidonia. Obviously, that clearly is an issue. But how do you feel that maybe there could be pre-existing moorings created so that perhaps, you know, people know exactly where they can anchor or where they can attach to so that we get to pick and choose as an island where those moorings are so that it's not, you know, people being left with the stress, I think, also of, you know, wondering where to put their anchor and perhaps not being knowledgeable enough in terms of the mapping or the network itself to be able to anchor safely. There's a, well, when I look to the solutions, uh, I see that there are, quite simple and I'm still surprised why we are not uh, applying the solution. So the first one and the logical one is to create more ecological anchorage uh, fields. No? Uh, we have to make easy for the people that is arriving with the boat. Uh, we don't have to say uh, look them as a guilty because, well, I navigate a lot. I'm doing uh, more than half of the year navigating in the ocean. And many times you arrive with your boat and it's at night and you are tired. So it's not like parking a car. So we have to make this uh, easy and simple for the boats that we want them to come because we depend on, on tourism. So why we are not creating this field, this is something that I still do not understand. First of all, because it's cheap. 
If we want to put, for example, in Talamanca, that I live very close to Talamanca, and when I'm going walking or I like to go running, working out, and I see full of boat with the anchors on the seagrass, I I get angry, you know. And why we don't put this uh, ecological anchorage spots in in Talamanca? It's crazy. It's ridiculous because, as I'm saying, it's cheap and it's something that, if for any reason, uh, after one year or three years, we think that it's not working, it's so easy to remove. It's not like building up a port that is going to be there for decades. No, this uh, an ecological field is a drill in the bottom, so it's absolutely no impact. In one season, you pay the, mm-hmm. the, the cost, and at the same time, you are creating employment, and you are going to give a better service to the boats that they are coming to the Balearic Islands. So we have to, uh, I like to keep always <laughs> polite, but we have to say uh, to the uh, institutions that they have the responsibility, please do it. Create it's absolutely no sense that we have around four thousand boats navigating around Ibiza and Formentera, and the ecological anchorage uh, spots. I think is not reaching two hundred. This is ridiculous. I mean, moving on from the boating angle, how crucial is Posidonia in the marine ecosystem and overall environmental health of Ibiza? Maybe there are some specific functions or contributions that you can sort of um, provide us with that, you know, obviously stand out. It's doing a lot of contributions. Now, uh, I used to say, joking, that is like an athlete with a lot of records. Uh, and I'm going to tell some of the records of Posidonia. Uh, well, I said that is giving up to the 80% of the sand that we, we have of on the beaches, and this is this is amazing. Also, if we look at the contribution that is doing to a problem that we have created, that is climate change, and we are already suffering with these very high temperatures in in summer, and we are having very long summers uh, still today. It's uh, too hot for the time of the year. Uh, we are, if we look to the Posidonia as a carbon sink is the most effective ecosystem in nature. One square meter of Posidonia is getting the same amount of CO2 from the atmosphere that 15.15 square meters of Amazonas rainforest. And this is amazing. This is hard to believe, but it is uh, accurate, calculate, and it's like this, you know. Uh, at the same time, uh, is contributing to the stability and many of the beaches we have, thanks to the protection that is doing against the erosion of the of the wind and especially of the waves. In some beaches, in one kilometer, is decreasing one meter the high of the of the waves, you know. 
so, and this is something very easy to understand. Going back again to Talamanca, just using a pair of uh, Googles, a mask and a snorkel. And if we go in snorkeling, we will see the Posidonia reefs that they are thousands of year old and they have an altitude they are like three, four, up to five meters high. It's like a jetty, a natural jetty that is on the sand, underwater, and is protecting. So if we remove that Posidonia from Talamanca, if we remove that reefs, the beach will be gone, completely mm -hmm. sure. And this is something uh, we can see in other places as uh, the north of Formentera, Igetas, uh, the famous Igetas beaches, Espalmador Island. Uh, the, the, when you look in Google Earth from, uh, from, then you see that it's a, like a narrow uh, sandbar in the middle of a huge sea. And how is this sandbar in, in the middle of the sea? So the plane is underwater. Is the protection that the Posidonia is giving. And another uh, thing that is giving to us, uh, well, Posidonia to nature is the, the habitat. It's a habitat for hundreds of species. Uh, shooting back to the past, if uh, in the, well, some centuries ago, these islands were with people uh, living on the islands and getting food is because the habitat that the Posidonia is giving to many species. So a lot of the fish species that have been eaten by human beings living on the islands, it was thanks of the habitat created by this plant. Mm. Magical. I mean, I think it's responsible for cultivating or bringing in the foraminifera, which create pink sand in Formentera. Yes, the pink sand is, is one explanation, and the pink sand is on the Posidonia, and it's one animal, I'm sorry, but this animal doesn't have a common name. It's a foraminifer. It's a type of animal that lives in the roots of the Posidonia, and the color mm -hmm. is pink, and when these foraminifers are dying, uh, wash up, on, on shore, on the beaches, and this is why we have this sand that is a treasure. And when you go walking, if you remember <laughs> what I'm saying, and you stop and you look the the sand from close, but close to the water, not inside the beach, if you look the sand from close, you will recognize uh, the skeletons of the mollusks, of bryosaurs, of echinoderms, and you will, well, immediately you see, wow, this sand is, is beautiful, and it really is. Can you talk to us? I know you don't want to focus on the reforestation or the replanting, but can you talk us through the process, perhaps, of what it takes to actually plant new Posidonia plants underwater? Yes. Yes, the, the planting of Posidonia is beautiful. It's long, but beautiful. And it's a starting on... Uh, well, first of all, I don't know if everybody knows that the Posidonia is not an algae. It's a plant, a superior plant. That means it has roost, uh, roots, uh, shoot, leaves, and flowers. Uh, and this flower is the... Uh, 
sexual organ of the plant and the flowerings are happening right now at the end autumn and at the end of the summer in this moment the posidonia fields it's amazing it's beautiful because they are full of flowers something amazing to to see to witness no and at the beginning of the winter well these uh, flowers as in the terrestrial ones is going to become the the fruit no? so these fruits that is like an olive and uh, the people they used to call a uh, sea olive uh, they are uh, was up on on shore they float when they release from the plant they go to the surface and drifting with the wind and the currents and arrives to the shore of fermentera peaches and ibiza and then uh, this is uh, starting the end of the winter and the spring and we start for weeks we are collecting this year we collect around 15,000 of fruits that's a lot and <laughs> it's a lot of time walking along the shore and after what we do is that we germinate uh, these fruits because the inside is the small seed and then we are getting by the end of June more or less beginning of July tiny beautiful Posidonia plants are amazing and you see the seed you see small roots and and the and the leaves you know and when well we have growing in in the ocean in the sea up to September and in September then we start uh, the planting of, of, of the Posidonia and after we'll do the monitoring so in this moment we have just finished planting uh, close to 10,000 plants that is a lot I think it's the record in the Mediterranean nobody did uh, that much and well uh, and our goal is for the next year uh, is to create a beautiful project is uh, we want to restore and do a, a big a Posidonia meadow in a place that uh, well, we'll, we'll say in the future. And uh, I think it's beautiful to have a meadow that can be tracked and probably in 30 years uh, we can see a, a beautiful meadow coming back uh, through restoration and with animals uh, going back uh, to this underwater forest. Wow. And how do you actually physically, I mean, it sounds like a silly question, but how do you, you know, when you're planting something under the water that's already obviously under the sea, how easy is it to, to, to plant? Well, it's not easy. <laughs> it's difficult. And I have to say that we are testing different methodologies. Uh, is affecting, of course, uh, sea conditions. Uh, the underwater world is tough because when everything is nice and fine until it's coming a big storm. This year, with a big storm, I still have the pain. <laughs> we lost more, almost 6,000 beautiful plants. Yes, uh, because, well, we know the power and the strength of the waves and the sea when it is a, a storm taking place. Uh, so we are using different methodologies. Uh, it's uh, also, we are trying different substrate. It's not the same if we are planting in uh, where it was a Posidonia meadow up to some years, that places are the easiest. Uh, but when you go to a place that is 
no rest of the past uh, presence of the Posidonia, then we, we use, uh, for example, epoxy, two components, uh, no toxic, of course, and we are trying this technique that is uh, working good. It's used a lot in aquariums also. Uh, so, well, it's like, uh, it's a work that uh, I think we are going to need some years to go, well, because we are starting now to do the planting underwater. On land, we are doing for six 8,000 of years, uh, that is what we call the Neolithic, when the um, human beings start to, to plant, you know, uh, but underwater we, we have a start uh, right now. So it's still a lot uh, to be learned. Mm. How do you think that the local community or environmental organizations and policymakers can get involved to support these initiatives related um, to these sustainable practices um, and enhance the you know the meadows and promote their marine conversation in the surrounding areas. Well, I think in general that is the moment to be working in collaboration, all of us, mm -hmm. and especially involve uh, the local communities. So. Uh, our Posidonia planting project, it's open and it's people that is helping. But as I said some minutes before, uh, we are still learning. So we, we need to learn a bit, uh, a bit uh, more in order to be uh, including people because we, we got phone calls, emails and people that is coming uh, to our facilities saying that they want to help and they they are involved and they help. Uh, but I think it's very important uh, all the protection and recuperation initiatives, not only the Posidonia planting, should be involved in the local communities. This is, mm -hmm. an, uh, and this I'm saying, the normal people, uh, fishermen, uh, nature belong to all of us and we have to feel nature, to enjoy nature and to have the responsibility of the protection and the restoration altogether. If we want to, we have to recover the Mediterranean Sea. The Mediterranean Sea is, we are losing. It's sad to say, but it's real. Eh? But we are still on time. But still on time, is that means we have to act now, not in the future. We don't have more time to still say we are on time. We have to act now. And if we want the success, recovering the Mediterranean, and have the Mediterranean that it was in Ibiza and Formentera in the 60s, in the when the hippies, it was an amazing, rich and beautiful Mediterranean. We have to be all together. Mm. Can people get in touch with you to help you with that replanting and germinating project? Is that is that something we could add into the episode of show notes so that people can <laughs> come and help or volunteer maybe next Next summer? Yes, of course. Uh, this is, we have our website uh, that is Belmaria Association. Belmaria Association is the way to get in touch with us. And we are happy. Uh, 
we have a collaborating spirit and, and I really believe and we really believe what I said that uh, if we want to have success uh, taking care of the Mediterranean around Ibiza and Formentera uh, we need uh, not to be our project have to be the project of Ibiza and Formentera. Mm. What would you like to see as the subjects raised, I think, at the Forum Arena conference next month? Because obviously it's a space for reflection and debate on all these you know, subjects related to the Mediterranean and the Balearic Sea. The Forum Arena, you mean? Yeah. yeah. Well, the Forum Marino is a great initiative. I have the privilege to be involved in the organization committee. It's an honor for me. I think it's, it's a beautiful initiative because it's like uh, for some hours, some days, we have the opportunity to all of us sit uh, all together and concentrate and talk about uh, the Mediterranean Sea in general and the, Mediter the Mediterranean Sea in Ibiza and Formentera. This is something that we have to do more often, is to stop and think because the Mediterranean and the sea is giving everything to us. The oxygen we are breathing in this moment that we are having the interview, also me, that I'm in the middle of the Pyrenees, 70% is coming from below the surface. So if we have life in this planet, it's because we have water. Yeah, this is what... But what subjects would you like to see discussed yes, so at the, the Fora Marina? Well, I was going to... Uh, so the, the subject is, uh, for me, the most important, and this is why I was introducing all these things, is the protection and recovering the Mediterranean. I want to see something that I want to see more in our society. is a more ambition of protection, a more ambition of recuperation in general. It's not the moment to talk about protection. It's more the moment to talk about recuperation. It's not enough to protect. We have to... We need the ambition to recover and have the Mediterranean that it was, as I said, up to the uh, 1960 uh, around the island. So uh, this is something that I would love to see in the in the Foro Marino. I'm sure I'm going uh, to see, and I hope this is going to be a spread in in the society of Ibiza and Formentera. Mm. And obviously we're going to see the, you know, the likes of Sylvia Earle appearing there this year, who I think is kind of like you know, one of those iconic figures in terms of the world of preservation. I'm sure people probably say the same thing about you in relation to <laughs> Posidonia and your lifelong kind of crusade really to, to, to protect it. Well, Sylvia is a legend. I have the honour. I met her. Uh, I dove uh, with her. I knew her. It's a pity because I'm going to be far away uh, when the Foro Marino, I will be in Micronesia in, on expedition with National Geographic. So 
uh, in this moment, I, I'm not going to have the opportunity of meeting her again. And it's fantastic that Sylvia is coming. She's, uh, as I said, a legend and an inspiration. Uh, her life uh, commit with the protection of, of the ocean. Uh, she, she knows a lot. She's a smart. And I'm sure she's going to be an amazing contribution and inspiration uh, for the Foro Marino. Mm. Where are you, you going on an expedition? Can you tell us about the plan for that? Well, I'm working since uh, 14 years ago in a project of National Geographic that the name is Pristinsis. Uh, the goal of Pristinsis is to protect the remote places in the ocean. This is an idea of Enric Sala. Enric Sala is National Geographic Explorer, and I have the privilege. Well, he's my friend now also, but he called me uh, 14 years ago. I did already, this is going to be my 49th <laughs> expedition uh, with Pristinsis. I've been in, in all the Pristinsis expeditions, and we are very proud because at this moment, uh, uh, we have inspired uh, for creating around, I don't remember exactly, but almost uh, 30 marine protected areas. This is like almost 7 million square kilometers. And in Pristinsis, we have the ambition of protection of the 30% by 2030. That is, is a goal uh, signing the last uh, uh, United Nation, Nations uh, uh, Biodiversity Conference by the end of last year. Uh, and it was signed by 196 uh, countries. Is the protection of the 30% of the waters by 2030. So this is the challenge we have now on the table. Mm. This is the Reserva 30 project that everybody can obviously go and sign yeah. at uh, Reserva30.org. Yes, this is what we have brought uh, these message and project and goal for the Mediterranean uh, and create a, a campaign that is called Reserva 30, uh, is 30 reserve, but in Spanish Reserva 30 because we are launching uh, in Spain, hope to be success and after open to the rest of the Mediterranean. And what we want is to have at least half a million people signing for the protection of the 30% of the Mediterranean. And this, if we achieve this, we, we are going, it's going to be a benefit to recover the local. It's nothing against the fishing, it's for the fishing. We need to recover local fishing and to continue fishing, we, we need to protect. In this moment, the Mediterranean close to fisheries is 0 0.2. This is ridiculous, 0 0.2. And this is why it's a sea that is getting empty. Eh? If we look what, what a fisherman uh, from today is getting when he's coming back from fishing, and we look what a fisherman from 1960 was getting when he came back from fishing, then we realize that we are... Uh, we have in front an empty sea. 
and this is what is happening with the Mediterranean and with common sense is we need the 30% of if we want to continue fishing if we want to continue enjoying a wonderful sea we need to protect the 30% and we can enjoy the 70 eh? Uh, of course, doing on a logical way, but reserve. I like more the word reserve. We have to reserve the thirty percent. Mm. What What does um, one of these expeditions entail when you go off? You've been on forty nine. What do you boys get up to? <laughs> well, when I'm on expedition, I feel a bit like I am an astronaut because we go to places. Now I just came back from the last one. I've been six weeks in Marshall Island in the ocean in six weeks six weeks we haven't seen an airplane we haven't seen a boat and we haven't seen a human being so why because we go to very remote places so your life is the vessel so this is why I'm saying I feel like an astronaut for me I I have the privilege in Princess I'm the underwater cinematography director and I'm every day like four five six hours underwater with my brother doing the morning I well I wake up I have breakfast I finish assembling, setting up my cameras, set up my, well, get my rebreather, and we go for a three-hour dive, more or less, and going back, you download the image, you charge batteries, have lunch, rest maximum half an hour, and going to the second long dive. And this is, uh, so, uh, every day, and always very... I, I'm passionate about what I'm doing. I enjoy to be underwater and I do my best with, with the camera to get uh, first the beauty and the amazing richness of the ocean because I know it's the way to engage and connect the people to the importance. And when you get the, and you see all what I see, you realize we have a wonderful planet and we have to protect. And this is what I'm trying to do uh, with the, with the camera. No? And sometimes I also have to film and take photos of the bad uh, story that is the human impact. Uh, uh, it's sad to say, but more and more I'm diving in reefs that are completely dead and this is terrible this is already happening we are listening that by 2030 by 2040 95 percent of the coral reefs uh, will be dead and this is true and unfortunately this is happening and i hate and i'm not going to send never an apocalyptic message but we have uh, to be positive because we still can change uh, the situation but we have to be real we have uh, when we look to something we have to say what is really happening and it is really happening that coral reefs in the world are dying and this is something that I'm witnessing and I don't like to say but I know I have to say uh, that we need to change we have to do, to do things better and uh, we have to reduce the human print uh, continue living as in terms of comfort that we have and we want to have but not with the footprint that we are living 
right now in the planet. This is something, progress is to live good, but not destroying nature. Otherwise, we are destroying ourselves. If people are listening to it feeling like a slight sense of despair and wondering what it is that they can act do themselves, maybe there's two or three small things that you could perhaps give people a small moment to think, wow, I'm going to take away from this podcast that you know, I'm going to go and take some action in some small way. What, what would you suggest? How can we support just in a you know, personal way? Well, I say this many times that people is asking to me, what can I do? And I think, well, is the moment. First of all, we have to think as individuals. And as an individual, each one of us, we have to be perfect. It's the moment to be perfect. What I mean, to do some things that they are boring and we are always lazy is like recycling at home. This. How I, I don't find a word, but to go to the trust and put inside all together the organic, the plastic, the paper, this is not nice. This is not a smart. And I know that is we are lazy human beings and to separate, but this is one of the first things uh, we have to do. It looks like it's not important, but it's very important. Right now we recycle like nine, nine only percent of the plastic we use. Why? We recycle only the nine percent because we are lazy. <laughs> it's not very difficult uh, to put in a different bucket and after uh, drop in the, in the right place. So this is that I know is not very sexy. You know? the, I don't feel like it's a great contribution to nature, but it is. You know? And another thing that is, is something that is going to be happening, I'm sure, in the next year is the use, uh, consider the use of the energy that we are, all of us, doing. Eh? Uh, especially when we live in the first world, but not many human beings, uh, we don't have the access, uh, for example, well, to the energy, to the hot water, or to the juice of water, or to get an airplane and travel in a way of, I'm going to have dinner, I have a restaurant that I can go walking, but I can take a car, and I'm going one hour away, okay? So I think that probably this is something, uh, while we are changing the the, the the energies we have, that is the depends more on the society, on government, but it's one of us, I think, is the moment to be changing our mentality about all the things that we are using, eh? all the things we buy, all the things that we buy and we don't use, no? Uh, is uh, in our society in the last year, and I I include myself. When I look to Mm -hmm. me, I see that we have a lack of respect of the high amount of things uh, that we use or the high amount of energy that we also use. Very easy, easy to do. I mean, just lastly, can you just maybe just tell us a little bit about how you cultivated such a close connection to nature? When was it that your kind of diving journey began and how, you know, how did this underwater fascination come to be? 
there's, there's something that well, I, I think it was in my first National Geographic expedition. I was in the ship. I said, how, how, how I'm arrived here? <laughs> so I looked to myself and looking to myself, I, I, it's very clear. I don't know why, but since I was a kid, my first memory is me playing. Uh, to, well, I was born in 19, 1964. Okay, so in that moment, of course, it was no internet in uh, Spain, it was one television channel, but in that channel, it was the great uh, Jacques Cousteau. <laughs> so I belong to that generation that I grew up uh, watching Jacques Cousteau documentary, and also I grew up uh, between Madrid and a beautiful uh, uh, tiny town in the north of Spain, in the Basque country, where I was spending three, four months in in the ocean, in the beach, and uh, well, I don't know why, but I always uh, love nature and the ocean. So when I was only thirteen years old, I, <laughs> I I remember me. I want to be like Jacques Cousteau. So he's. Uh, Behind all this passion, I'm, I'm saying, but I think it's a bit of obsession. <laughs> and my from Monday to Sunday, and all my life is around nature, especially around the the oceans. And well, I like it that much that it become my profession, and I. I had very very clear, as I said, with thirteen year old that. Um, I was inspired by Jacques Cousteau, and I looked by my own how was the best ways. I studied biology after I started. I didn't finish my PhD in marine biology is what I, looking back, is the only thing that, but well, I was success with my work by my own, so I quit. I uh, I couldn't finish, uh, so well, I make my my path, and this is something I use and I like to say to always to to the youth, uh, to young people when I'm going. I just to give talks in the schools in, in university. If you have a dream, go for it, uh, go for it because uh, you are going to get. Uh, try to do what you like uh, because if you don't get, it doesn't matter. What is important is. All the day, one day after another, because if you are doing what you want, then you are going to be happy eh? uh, and you will make your your path, I'm, I'm sure. Mm. My name is Anne Felix. That is a great way to finish. Thank you very much for the inspirational words and the words of wisdom about <laughs> our underwater ecosystems. It's a, it's a pleasure and I really appreciate you uh, making the time to join us. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure and I felt very good. Thank you. Reserable. It's the Reserable. It's the Reserable.